1: On the New Books Network, I'm Deidre Tyler, host of the channel, and today we'll be talking with Jesse Daniels, the author of the book, Nice White Ladies, The Truth About White Supremacy, Our Role in It, and How We Can Help Dismantle It. How are you doing today? doing Great. Thanks so much for having me. How are you? I'm great. I wonder if you could begin the interview by saying a few words about yourself and how you became interested in this project.
0: Sure. Um, I was born and raised in Texas, which uh, shaped a lot of who I am. And I, um, while I was in Texas, I I studied at the University of Texas to get my PhD. And while I was there, um, it was the first time that I learned about the history of lynching in our country. And um, I was shocked by it, frankly. And it really sort of uh, set me on this kind of lifelong path of trying to figure out what that was about. Um, And one of the things that I read early on when I was in graduate school was by Ida B. Wells Barnett, and she wrote a series of publications called The Red Record, which was about lynching and about the justification used for lynching, which was often about, you know, attacks on white women. And, And I really, I didn't see people in the other classes I was taking in graduate school, like in my gender class, really talking so much about that the role that white women played in lynching. And so that's really sort of how I got, um, got interested in this topic originally. And I guess the other thing I would say about me is that now I'm a writer and professor living in New York City and that distance from growing up in Texas to now living in New York is um, a large geographical distance but it also um, involves a lot of personal distance for me from that upbringing to where I am now, so.
1: Can you tell the audience about the built-in advantages of being a white woman? And you gave so many great examples.
0: Yeah. I mean, the examples are all around us, but we are not very practiced at noticing them. Um, so there's lots of built-in advantages to being a white woman. And I think some of those come with the kind of ability for second chances that we get in this life. Um, and I have my own experiences with that. I, one of the stories that I tell in the book is about um, um, after I after I got my PhD and and my first academic job, I wasn't very happy there. And it was about the time, late 1990s, early 2000s. It's about the time of the rise of the popular internet. And I actually left academia and went to work in a dot com company and had a great time there and met some great friends and would probably still be there if I hadn't gotten laid off. But I got laid off. Um, when that company shed a bunch of jobs and one of the other people that got laid off was a good friend of mine who happened to be an African-American man. And he never recovered from that layoff um, and, and just never was employed full-time again. And, and I was able to, you know, after a year or so of, you know, cobbling together, living through three or four part-time jobs was able to, you know, put my career back on track and, and, came back onto the tenure track in sociology. Um, But he was never able to do that. He was originally trained as a journalist and had lots of other skills, but that layoff really... Um, sort of derailed him in a way that it didn't for me. And so I think about that as kind of um, that one anecdote in my own life as kind of symbolic of all the other ways that white women get these second chances. We get advantages in education and employment, and we kind of get infinite chances to start over when we mess up in our lives. Um, And that uh, latitude doesn't exist for other people. I guess the the other way, the other advantage, if you want to think about it that way, is the way that white women are assumed to be innocent and assumed to be truth tellers, um, always in the culture. And and it's almost as if, um, it's really hard to get, um, you know, any kind of bad deeds to stick to white women, you know? And I think it's part of what's been so upsetting to people about the Karen memes, right? Because it's kind of a way in which white women are being forced to deal with our behavior, um, in, in the public sphere in a particular kind of way. So there are lots of advantages of white to being a white woman. I'll
1: just stop there. You know, you went on page 10 and you said, quote, as white women are the main beneficiaries of affirmative action policy. Mm. Tell us about that.
0: Yeah, thanks. This is actually my favorite (laughs) way to be interviewed is when someone just picks a quote from the book and says, say more about that. (laughs) So thank you for that. Um, Yeah, I mean, affirmative action. There there are several court cases that I mentioned in the book. One of them is actually was um, against University of Texas at Austin, where I went to school by a woman named Abigail Fisher. You know, and Abigail Fisher is this young white woman in Texas who, you know, uh, like me, had gone to public schools in, in uh, Texas and then thought that she deserved a seat at the um, uh, flagship university in the in the state. And when she didn't get a seat um, at University of Texas at Austin, she thought there must be some discrimination under um, uh, a foot that kept her from getting into the University of Texas at Austin. But it's it's just the fact that she had a m- sort of mediocre um earlier academic record that kept her out. But I think that there's a way in which white women often get counted as diversity. Right, If you look at an organization or institution that's completely controlled by white men, and then you have a white woman get a position in that firm, then it counts as diversity. But it's not really doing anything to upend the whiteness of that organization or that institution. But because white women count as diversity, we sort of think that we're doing the work of, you know, diversifying an organization or something if we get a seat there. And if we don't, there are a lot of white women like Abigail Fisher that think there must be some kind of discrimination going on. But in fact, you know, affirmative action ends up helping out white women a lot more than it ends up harming us. So, I mean, it's just one of the interesting twists on What we think is happening around race and gender in this culture and what's actually happening is often it's often actually the reverse.
1: Well, thank you so much for telling us this something that it's it's needed in terms of for you to say it is not helping everybody else. Now, you went on to say that white families pass on advantages such as wealth. Explain those two professors. Yeah.
0: I mean, I think that there's a real one of the threads in the book is really about white families. And I talk about my own. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I I recognized early on is that my family was not going to be passing on any uh, wealth inheritance to me there. Uh, both my parents died a little bit younger than they should have, probably. And they both died without any money. Um, and so I didn't get any inheritance from my family. But I've been close to white families who have, have engaged in this practice, and I've seen it uh, up close. There was a period of time when I, that first academic job I had, one of my colleagues there, she and her husband had bought a, a brownstone, a whole entire brownstone as a single family dwelling. And she made the same crappy salary I made as an assistant professor, but she had done a couple of things different in her life. One, she had had the good sense to have parents that died the right way and left her uh, an inheritance from their housing. Um, And she married a a straight white man who also had some family money and so because of that family money these two people who are good you know good left progressive people and she was probably at the women's march um they were able to buy a whole brownstone in new york which if you're not from new york you don't realize what a big deal that is but it's you know probably a million dollars easily probably more now um but it's a big deal, you know, to be able to buy a house in New York, and they were able to do it because of family money. And that's really, I mean, if you look at any of the real estate stories in, in New York, people who are, you know, under seventy basically, if they're able to afford a, a house, it's often because they've gotten family money. And I just, um, I started looking at that fact, you know, this very material fact of life in New York about how hard it is to to buy a place, and sort of looking at the um, of juxtaposing that and looking at the, um, evidence on family, you know, um, what we call the racial wealth gap, you know, and the way that that often gets written up is that black families have hard time keeping pace with white families. And it's like, well, that's not really it. It's not that they have a hard time. It's that white families are hoarding resources and that's the real, that's the real difference there. Um, and so, and And the thing is that white families don't think of themselves as hoarding resources, right? I mean, that's part of what I'm challenging white families to think about in this book is that thing that you take as, um, that is taken for granted, that you're going to pass on the advantage that you get through owning a house to your children. I really want to challenge that calculus and say, we need to reconsider this taken for granted thing that we do in white families, because this is part of the problem. We are doing it when we are passing this on to our children. So that's, a, I think, one of the most challenging things for white people to read in this book. But I think it's a, an important uh, critique to to say out loud.
1: Why are you making the point that white women need to tell the truth about themselves and transform themselves?
0: I really think that white women have so much power in this society that we don't even realize. I mean, I think that one of the downsides of a particular form of feminism, white feminism is what I mean, has been to teach white women that we're only ever victims in a particular kind of way. And I think that that's done us a disservice because part of what we have in this society is a lot of power. And let me tell you what, and I I know that that power is provisional, right? That white men almost always have more power than we do in society, but we also have more power than lots of other people in society. And we have to acknowledge that. I think once we acknowledge that, we can start to use that power to transform society. We can start to pay attention to the ways that our actions matter. Um, in reproducing white supremacy. We can we can choose to do things differently than we've done them before. And I, I think it's time that we start doing that. This This moment of reckoning that we're having, I think is also coming for white women. We've got to start acknowledging our participation in these systems and find new ways of being in the world that don't perpetuate this harm on other people.
1: You know, you came to a really good realization in chapter two, you said- Feminism changed my life. It broke my heart and left me with questions I don't know how to answer. Mm. Do you think a lot of women are struggling with this? I do. I mean, I
0: think that there's a lot of confusion around feminism and what it offers us. I think that, you know, back in the, I'm old enough to remember back in the, um, an earlier generation of feminist movement, there was a, a, a button and a bumper sticker that went around that was, I'm going to mangle the exact quote, but it was something like, if your goal is equality with men, then you're not aiming high enough. (laughs) And I think in some ways, part of what we, um, came to believe, um, according to a certain kind of feminism is that we just, our goal was to be equal with men and, and typically this meant white men. And I, I just think that that, um, That goal is one that we have to reconsider, and I think that that's part of what is making women who identify as feminists sort of think differently about what our goals of feminism are. You know, I mean, when I say that feminism broke my heart, I mean, I'm thinking a little bit about the women's movement. Uh, I mean the women's march in January of 2017, right? And and at that march, right, this is the one where so many women showed up wearing these knitted pink caps um, that some people called pussy hats. And and part of what was so heartbreaking about that march were signs like the ones that said, you know, if Hillary had won, I'd be at brunch now. And that sign, I mean, while a lot of people laughed at that sign, I mean, part of what's so offensive about that sign and so heartbreaking, really, is that it, it erases all the people who had been in the streets marching for Black Lives Matter, you know, where, where were these women holding signs, if Hillary had won, I would be at brunch now, when Trayvon Martin was murdered in the street, you know, and so that's part of what I think that we are having to come to terms with now as feminists is, kind of the way that we have not paid attention to race in in all the dimensions that we should need to, to really um, um, have liberation for everybody.
1: Now, switching the gears now, you talked about the beauty industry. Why has it grown? And what is this in terms of the connection with women today?
0: Yeah. I mean, it's interesting that you asked about the beauty industry. I actually talk about the wellness industry, but it's very, I mean, there. are if you did um, Venn diagram of the overlapping circles between the beauty industry and the wellness industry, there wouldn't be much um, space between them. Um, The wellness industry, I think is so fascinating and interesting when we are thinking about gender and race, especially when we think about the way that white women have been, you know, both promulgators you know the marketers of wellness culture and the subscribers or the or the consumers of wellness culture and and oftentimes both of those things at once um so it's first of all the first thing to say about the beauty and wellness industry it's a billion dollar business and a lot of the the share of that market is because of white women and so I mean, I talk about lots of different aspects of this, but one of the ones that's sort of easiest to talk about is Gwyneth Paltrow, right? And her um, company called Goop, which is a whole brand lifestyle now. But I mean, part of what Paltrow is doing is that she's uh, she's culling, (laughs) she's like a colonizer going through indigenous cultures and pulling out Um, different elements from indigenous culture and repackaging them and selling them for sort of mainstream American culture. And so, and that's, you know, offensive and problematic in lots of different ways. But, but the other point that I wanted to make about wellness culture is that it's really cultivating a kind of uh, persona, a a particular kind of white femininity um, for women who, you know, Sign their emails with things like light and love, um, you know, and uh, sort of think that if I can go and do yoga three times a week um, and eat clean, whatever that means, um, then I am doing all that I can to be right in the world and I don't need to think about anything else, which gets labeled as negativity. Um, and I'm just going to sorry, I'm just going to go into my cocoon um, and stay in this sort of um, this sheltered place um, created just for white women. And it, it reinforces a kind of notion of specialness that we as white women are in particular need of care. And these industries are you know, created for our purposes to help us care for ourselves. Um, But I think there's also something to the actual subject position of being a white woman that is difficult and uh, draining. And, And what I mean by that is because of the structures of society, we're often doing this thing where we're managing up to white men, whether it's a husband or a boss or, you know, some other power holder in our life. And then we're managing down to people that we employ or work for us in our household or um, are managing kids. So there is this kind of strain on the position of being a white woman just
1: because of these structures that we have.
0: And I do think it may take extra care to maintain that kind of subject position.
1: You know, on page 141, you said. But I want to suggest that for some of us, it can be so painful to exist mm-hmm. as being a white woman. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So that's from that chapter on, uh, that I call love and theft. And um, uh, kudos to my CUNY colleague, Eric Lot, who coined that term. Um, so love and theft is really about these women who uh, sometimes it gets called this, these kinds of cases get it's called ethnic fraud. It's not a term that I use in the book, but it's a, a way of talking about women who have uh, adopted another racial identity and seek to pass as that. And, and what I'm talking about here are white women who have, in various ways, tried to pass as Black. Um, and there's a range of these kinds of stories. Um, but the one that that quote that you mentioned is from is about Jessica Krug, who some of your listeners may remember was a woman who in the summer, late summer of, of 2020, um, revealed that she had been lying about the fact that she claimed to be Black and Latina. And she was actually a white Jewish woman from Kansas. And, um, and so she, and she had built a whole academic career around this. It was such an elaborate... Um, prevarication on her part. I was just really fascinated by it. And just another thing about the book is this chapter was actually the last one that I wrote. um, And I hadn't planned to include it originally, but then the story, and I had finished a whole draft of the book and sent it to my editor. And then the story of Jessica Krug broke. And I thought, oh, I need to go back (laughs) and have a think about this. And because I thought it's going to be one of the only ways that some people Have ever thought about the subject position of white women and as it relates to race? It's like, oh, there's this weird thing where white women are pretending to be black. What's going on with that? So that's sort of why I did that chapter and wanted to understand what was going on with Jessica Krug and and part of what I believe was happening with her, with the other examples I talk about in the book, which are Rachel um, Dolezal, who since changed her name, and then there's another one, Margaret Jones um, Seltzer, who wrote a memoir. and claim to be Native American. Uh, Part of what I think is going on, I think there's some real pathology happening with these different cases. I mean, they're just kind of so outlandish that I think there's something perhaps clinical going on with these individuals, but it made me wonder what was behind that. Like, so maybe they have had some kind of pathology happened and they're not well anymore, but what prompted that? What drove them to that? And I just think that there is something about being a white woman at this point in time, especially in these kinds of industries, right? So if you think about the memoir writer, the woman who taught at a university and then ran for president of NAACP and, and Jessica Krug, who was a professor, they're, they're in these kind of culture industries, right? Where one's identity And an authentic performance of that identity are often required to do the kind of work in those culture industries. And I just want to say that that to be a white woman and to then realize, oh, I'm part of the system of white supremacy can be very uncomfortable. And I recognize that in my own experience, in my own life. And I think that for these cases that I'm talking about in that chapter, that the discomfort from being a white woman and realizing that you're part of the system of white supremacy becomes so uncomfortable that they look for an escape hatch. There's got to be some way out of this. And this performance of another identity is, is their escape hatch. And I think it's disturbed and not, not a healthy choice, but I think it is part of what's going on there. Just to contrast that a little bit with this other example I talk about in that chapter, which is, um, Ruth McBride, who is James McBride's mother. She also did a similar kind of, uh, departure from her, uh, Upbringing as a woman who was raised white and Jewish, and she really she the way that she put it in her own words is I crossed over into the black community. But the way that she did it was that she didn't she didn't lie about her background. She just didn't really want to talk about it until her son pressed her on it, and she also you know was heavily invested in those communities where she um you know switched over to so she you know was involved in a black church and uh, for decades married to black men had you know, uh, black children, I can't remember the exact number. Um, but so she was part of the black community and that was part, that was where her identity was. So I, I don't want to suggest a kind of biological essentialism where people can't change their identity. They certainly can, but it's the, it's the way that people do it and the, and the sort of cultural meaning that's attached to it when they do it
1: that I find so fascinating. Yeah. Now, I was just wondering, what's the importance of white families claiming a little bit of Cherokee?
0: Yeah, so this is part of my own, you know, embarrassing but true family story. Um, My father, when I was growing up, believed deep in his soul that he was Cherokee he was not. Um, And he also taught me that I was Cherokee. And so when I learned about the story of the Trail of Tears, I learned it from my father. This is the story of um, indigenous Cherokee people being forced to leave Georgia and through the winter of, I believe it was 1838, 39, to walk through the the snow um, to Oklahoma, to the, the reservation where the federal government was putting them. Um So right. So my father told me this story. We are not Cherokee. We are uh, originally from England and Scandinavia and came here a long time ago. Um, but this fantasy that we were Cherokee did, did several things. One, it, it told a different story about our family than the one that was actually true. And the one that was actually true was that my great grandfather, my father's father, had, no, sorry, my father's grandfather. <laughs> my great grandfather had been one of the people who made the run into Oklahoma. So, so he was one of those white men on horseback who was with the federal government's, um, you know, creation and blessing riding out into what was um, unceded Indian territory in Oklahoma and staking his claim, literally driving a stake into the ground and saying, I will take this 160 acres with the government's blessing. This is called the Homestead Act. Um, And the government's um, bargain was, if you will cultivate this land, this is what we we white settlers believed was necessary. If you will cultivate this land, then you can have the deed to these 160 acres. Now, that's the true story of our family, which is one of white settlers and colonialists who, with the aid of a government handout, are actually taking land from indigenous people. And then that great grandfather's son was actually in the clan. And then his son, by the time it gets to his son, my father, he's got this fantasy that he's a Cherokee. Well, why do that? Why tell that story? Well, it's just a much happier, nicer story to tell, you know, than that we were settlers and colonialists. That's, that's not a happy, feel good story to tell. And you, and you see this kind of mythology about our families, you know, sold, you know, um, Commercialized and sold back to us, packaged through places like Ancestry.com, you know, which is selling us, come find the heroes in your family. And I'm like, I really, I want to go back and look and find the settlers, the colonialists, and the clan people in my family, but Ancestry doesn't have those records. So I mean, I think that, you know, the 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 story of a little bit Cherokee is a is a Uh, active fiction among white people because it's so reassuring, right? It says we're on the good side of history. We are not um, the settlers and the colonialists who came and took Indian land, but we are the ones who are aggrieved and uh, who have the right to be mad at the federal government. So that's that's the other twist on those a little bit Cherokee stories, which is it's always about being mad at the federal government. So that story that my father told me about the Trail of Tears, the real point of that story is not really solidarity with indigenous people. It's about what the federal government did and, and why that's the real danger in our lives.
1: Now, how is racial identity connected to marriage for white women?
0: Oh, it's a great question. Um, You know, there's we're living in this moment, right, where we have all this digital technology. And there was just a study that came out the other day where sociologists are saying that the number one way that people meet their partners for marriage uh, and family is through dating apps. And what's interesting about the dating apps is that they have a lot of data about who we choose and who our preferences are. And one of the studies that's come out from, OkCupid Cupid data is that there are two groups that have a very strong preference for other white partners. And those groups are gay, white men, strong preference for other gay, white men, partners and single white women, very, um, single white straight women who have a strong preference for white men as partners. Now, if you think about what's happening on these dating apps, people are, people have lots of reasons for dating, but one of the reasons is for, you know, long-term relationships and commitments. So what does it mean that white women are over selecting white men for their partners? At some level, it's a, it's a kind of rational calculation, right, about who they want to select as their uh, life mates, who, who seems to be um, an attractive partner and what they want their family to look like and who ha- is the best partner. Part of the calculation for who is the best partner is who is making the most money. And, you know, white men still out earn every other group. Um, so it makes a kind of rational choice sense in a way for white women to choose white men for their family creation. Um, but the other thing is there's there's real historical evidence that white women could actually lose their, their citizenship in the U.S. if they married someone who was non-white. So there was actually a, a law back in the 1800s where white women who married non-white non-citizens had to, um, relinquish their citizenship, um, in the U S. So there's a, there's a real sort of incentive built in for white women to choose white partners. And this, I also sort of take this to, you know, the extreme example and talk about, you know, people like the NYPD, uh, police officer who, uh, is caught on video camera choking to death, Eric Garner on a New York city street. Um, and he was never brought up on criminal charges, but there were, um, there was a procedure within the NYPD. And while he was under investigation for that brutal death on the streets of New York city, there was a woman who found him and introduced herself and they got engaged and got married. And And that was shocking to me in a way that that there is a white woman out there somewhere who sees a guy who has killed a man with his bare hands on the streets. And she says, yeah, he seems like an eligible bachelor to me. That just is mind blowing to me. Um, And and then the other case I talk about in in the conclusion of the book is um, a case that happened in Maine. Several years ago when uh, President Obama was still in office and there was a guy who was a neo-Nazi who was planning to kill Obama and blow up lots of other people in DC and his wife found out about the plot and he had been abusive to her and to their daughter, and she ended up killing him in his sleep, shot him twice in the head. And she ended up walking on those charges. This happened in Belfast, Maine. You can look it up if you want. Um, And she walked on those charges. But I mean, to me, these two cases, the one of the woman who marries the cop in New York City after he's choked Aaron Garner and the woman who kills her neo-Nazi husband in the bed. I mean, in In Texas, what we would say is, you know, don't marry them in the first place and you won't have to shoot them in in their sleep later. I mean, I just think that white women have got to come to grips with who it is we're sleeping with.
1: Now, you talked about the concept of white savior moms. Mm. Is this hurting black women for white women to be put up as the savior moms?
0: Yeah, absolutely. There are all sorts of ways that this um, construction of white women as savior moms um, really does actual harm to black women, and I'll, I'll I'll tell you and other women of color as well. And I'll tell you a couple of stories about that. One is, you know, um, there's a way in which white women are. I was saying earlier, just sort of seen as innocent and truth tellers, and somehow purer than other women, and that sort of, you know, stereotype, for lack of a better word, is um, really adheres when it comes to um, motherhood. And, and you know, the, the sort of images that circulated of Princess Diana as this sort of global mother, when she was, you know, sort of moving out of her marriage and doing all this uh, philanthropic work, and a lot of it in Africa, there are these pictures of her that float around, and she's like, in this angelic white light and she's holding a sickly child with darker skin. And that kind of image that circulated globally reinforced this idea that white women are somehow inherently better mothers than, you know, the actual mother of the child that Princess Diana is holding. Like, where is that mother? She's erased in those photographs. So there's the erasure that happens, but there's also a way in which the white motherhood you know, um, there's a, pre- a scholar by the last name of Dowd who has a great book on Black motherhood, and she talks about the way that that friendship groups form at playgrounds, and and Black women are and other women of color are, are routinely excluded from those, and and um, and that has real you know life consequences for those children, and also for the kind of society that we have. I mean, white mothers are really um, on the front lines of doing that work of hoarding resources for their children. And it's, it's often done at the expense of those black mothers and their
1: children. Now you talked about white women dying. Tell the audience some of the indicators of the high death rates among white women.
0: Yeah, there's an interesting and disturbing epidemiological trend that's happening which um, in the last, um, I want to say 15 or so years, where there's been a, a dramatic increase in deaths among white women. Part of that, you know, one of the, well, I'll just break it down. The, the highest uh, incidence of death for white women are from cancer. And after that is, I believe it's unintentional, like accidents. And then third is suicide. I could have those wrong, but that's just from memory. Um, and I talk about each one of those cases in the in the book, right? And if if you get cancer, you know you're supposed to be cheerful about it, right? And then there are all these sort of accidents that happen. This, um, and by cheerful about it, I mean the whole pink ribbon thing that sort of um, ignores the real carcinogens in society and that sort of thing. Um, there are these rise in unintended accidents. Um, and I talk about how that is often related to substance abuse issues, which don't get acknowledged because it couldn't possibly be a white woman who's drinking and drugging during the day when she's caring for children. Um, and that's, um, the case of Diane Schuler, which I talk about, who was a woman who rode her, drove her minivan the wrong way on the Taconic Parkway, which is, um, here in upstate New York. And, um, And then the third way that that white women are dying is from suicide. And I just heard this isn't in the book, but I just read this statistic recently that during the pandemic, the suicide rates for young girls has gone up 51%. That's a that's a staggering number. And it's a horrible tragedy. Um, That statistic, I couldn't find it broken down by race and gender. And this is a a common problem in trying to do this work is there's often statistics that are broken out just by gender or just by race, but often not both those things. So if there are any statisticians listening, please, please, please always do that, that next cell so I can see the race and gender happening at once. Um, but if you think about 51% of young girls Uh, committing suicide um, during the pandemic, a lot of people have pointed to social media and the way that that harms young girls' self-perception. And a lot of that is about appearance, you know, and that's tied to whiteness. You know, the, the way that we valorize a certain kind of appearance, the hot, thin blonde, that's a particular construction that does damage, actual damage to women and girls who are raised white and raised femme, um, that it really harms us. And I I think that there's a way in which we have to start to think differently about that. And I also talk about, you know, the death of my mother, who also took her own life. And, and I I see that, you know, for many years, I understood that as partly about gender and the way that gender had constrained her life. But more recently, I have begun to understand the way that whiteness also constrained her life. I mean, this this fantasy or this um, mirage that she had of being a housewife, and a stay-at-home mom, was this real, it was the brass ring for women, for white women of her generation. And it ended up being a cruel turn because it ended up being a very sad and depressed life for her. Um, and that was, that was also about whiteness because that's, that's not an aspiration that uh, women from other racial groups necessarily have.
1: You know, at the end of the book, you gave the reader eight things that white women can do. What do you think is the most important?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. I'm not sure which one I would say is the most important, but I, but I would say this about those eight things. I just want to be clear that you don't have to do all eight of the things. You can pick one of the things and do that. I think what's the thing that's most important is the one that troubles you the most. So there are lots of things that I ask, I suggest that people do. um, And a lot of times people will read those and go, I I could do some of this, but I can't do all of it. And I'm just like, pick one thing, pick any one of those things I list and do it. I think one of the most challenging things I I mentioned a little bit earlier, and I'll I'll say again, I think one of the most challenging things I say in those um, things to do um, that we could do differently is for people to reconsider this passing down their family wealth. Um, especially that wealth that comes through housing there's so much research out there now that that has documented the the you know the racism discrimination the white supremacy if you will in our housing market so if you're profiting from the housing market you're profiting from that racial, um, discrimination that's built into the housing market. And if you pass that on to your children, you're passing on that advantage. I mean, that is the problem that we're part of the problem that we're trying to solve. So I think that's probably for most people is the most challenging. But if you feel like you can't, you can't take that step, like I really want to pass on my wealth to my, to my white children think about supporting reparations. Like think about doing the macro thing if you can't do the individual thing, right? So I, I put all those eight things out there for everybody to have something that they can do.
1: Well, we've taken up enough of your time. Can you tell the audience, what are you working on next?
0: Oh, so many things. But one of the things I'm working on, I hope your um, listeners will um find me and find out more about is I'm working on a course about the book where if people want to do sort of more experiential work around uh, working on their whiteness and gender, then
1: they can see me about this course. So
0: that'll be out in 2022.
1: Thank you so much.
0: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.